should we should we be like worried for your mental state? Like, like those are the words of someone that like doesn't have their brain completely cluttered with histamine right now. Oh, like, is it still really bad, Katie? Like, there should be a new word for like bad for like this is not a fever. This is an affliction. Like, this is a temporary loss of. <laughs> Of my cognitive abilities, and it should be globally recognized as, like, a state of incapacitation. So, uh, like, what, you, you shouldn't have to do exams, for example? Like, for example, yes. Ah, here, Katie, you can still see out them eyes. Like, just barely, man. This, no, in fairness, this is true. They are disgustingly swollen. It's an <gasps> issue. Chloe! No, no, man, like, she is, she is so accurate right now, it's not even funny. See? See, Sersha, sometimes I can be scientific, okay? Them antihistamines, they're not doing nothing for you now. Like, no, I like, the only ones that work are the ones that knock me out. So it's like, like, same difference. Like, I mean, I'm either passed out on my computer without meds or I take the meds and then I pass out on my keyboard anyway. Like, did that, did that really need to be explained? I feel like we all kind of got that. <laughs> like, I no, like I just I can't think properly when my head's like full of fiberglass. Wow, itchy. Yeah, like you have no idea, man. Like it's, <laughs> it's Katie. Sorry, it's, it's <laughs> super gross, man. It's just it's so sad. Like has anything been helping at all, Katie? Well, well, like since since we were talking about folks making like resin art on the last show, I've been sort of like. I was sort of spending like loads of money on earrings shaped like gummy bears. Money, money I don't have. I should, I should clarify that. Are you serious right now? I, like that's that's what's helping you. But like I got purple ones with like Hobie flowers, man. They're Takeshi Murakami flowers. Kay, we've been through this. Ah, Sarah, come on, don't be a loser. Like no, that's not what they're called. That's what she was saying. Like that's you. Okay. Again, that didn't need to be clarified, but no, like, it's a good point, Sarah. Like, just because those flowers are the perfect embodiment of J-Hope's sunshininess. Oh my god, I just love you talking about how it clears <laughs> are. I shouldn't interrupt. <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's, he's just a pro. Like, how could you not appreciate that level of professionalism, you know? But, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> just because those flowers are pretty much J-Hope in an artwork, it doesn't mean BTS ARMY gets to co-op something that BTS didn't make. It's not cool. Yeah, and I mean, I'd argue that they'd be horrified at the idea of them co-opting something that they didn't make, like, themselves. Like, that's, yeah, they would similarly be horrified. This line of conversation displeases me. Okay, I just want that on record. Talking about BTS displeases you. No, of course talking about BTS doesn't displease me, Sarah. Jesus. I just do not appreciate being talked down to. I'm fine. Mm, corrected. Not talked down to. They are the same thing, Sarah. I'm not fine. the same thing. We're so, so we're supposed to just sit here and agree with you, despite you unknowingly, because you would never knowingly be unfair. Unless, you know... It's Katie and it's kind of funny. Yeah, I was just going to say, actually, <laughs> unknowingly, yeah, be incorrect. You know, we just shouldn't agree with an opinion just because we're friends. I mean, we should 
disagree with each other because we're friends. We should be okay with having all kinds of discussions and disagreements because we love and respect each other. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? You're here. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> that's, very, that's very, very good. Plus, anyway, I mean, I'm putting all of this down to you being upset about the Grammy situation. Uh, yes, 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 yes. So for those of you that are unaware, BTS were nominated for their first Grammy, but lost out to Nicki Minaj and Ariana Grande's collaboration um, at the ceremony last week. <laughs> um, it, was, it was Lady Gaga. What? Oh, man. It was... Oh, gross. It was, it was Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande, not Nicki Minaj. Like, like, am I going to have to hand over my title as grossest in the group right now? Look, I think so, Sarah. This is concerning, Kate. <laughs> Sick mind pollen is trying to kill me. Oh, that's what they all say. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but no, no, let's get back on topic here. So, like, no, I'm not upset about the Grammys. Actually, actually, if some people would remember, I believe my exact words last year were, why does some self-appointed group of assholes get to choose who the best artists were for the whole year? There's too much music out there for there to be a best it's stupid. Oh, so like it, the new Japanese language album being called The Best is like it's a political statement, you think? Oh, oh my God, no, I do. <laughs> 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 you know what? That's, that's enough of that. Um, we can... <laughs> You can talk about books, maybe for for a bit, because um, actually, do you know what we've got? We've got a lot of reading to do to do this week um, for some reason. Um, yes, anyway, the uh, stop being so cryptic. Um, the book this week um, is All My Mother's Lovers by Elana Massage. Why did we pick a book that isn't available on Kindle and Apple Books in Ireland at the moment? <laughs> because. We shouldn't be relying on those blood-sucking conglomerates. That's a hard word to say. Conglomerates. Conglomerates. Yeah, Bezos. We shouldn't be relying on them for our delicious literary needs. We should be shopping independent. <laughs> it's so much easier to take notes on me Kindle, Sergio. We can take paper notes for the greater good, Chloe. Oh, no, 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 for the greater good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but this, this book, this book is our, um, our second book in our series on LGBTQIA+. Um, authors uh, uh, do you know uh, I always feel like I'm leaving out letters oh. <laughs> mm. anyway, Jesus, anyway um, there's no time there's no time to Google um, why you know why don't we do the thing and forget about how awkward um, and and uh, stupid I am Aww, um, Sarah. yes let's, let's do the thing um, so yes Alana Massad so Alana Massad is a queer Israeli-American writer of fiction, nonfiction, and criticism. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, NPR, Story Quarterly, Tin Houses Open Bar, 7x7, Catapult, BuzzFeed, and many more. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> she is the founder and host of The Other Stories, an interview podcast featuring fiction writers. A graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, she has received her master's in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she is currently a doctoral student. She is the author of the novel All My Mother's Lovers. Um, and then the book itself, the uh, yeah, the book itself is pretty full on. Oh my yes. um, So do you know what? Yeah, I can, I can take the outline real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, all righty. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so intimacy has always eluded 27-year-old Maggie Krause, despite being brought up by married parents, models of domestic bliss, until, that is, Lucia came into her life. 
But when Maggie's mom, Iris, dies in a car crash, Maggie returns home only to discover a withdrawn dad, an angry brother, and along with Iris's will, five sealed envelopes, each addressed to a mysterious man she's never heard of. In an effort to run from her own grief and discover the truth about Iris, who made no secret of her discomfort with her daughter's sexuality, Maggie embarks on a road trip, determined to hand-deliver the letters and find out what these men meant to her mother. Maggie quickly discovers Iris's second, hidden life, which shatters everything Maggie thought she knew about her parents' perfect relationship. What is she supposed to tell her father and brother? And how can she deal with her own relationship with her whole world in freefall? Told over the course of a funeral and a shiva, and written with enormous wit and warmth, All My Mother's Lovers is the exciting debut novel from fiction writer and book critic Alana Massad. A unique meditation on the universality and particularity of family ties and grief, and a tender and biting portrait of sex, gender and identity. All My Mother's Lovers challenges us to question the nature of fulfilling relationships. Yeah, so, um, yeah, like we were saying, this... um, this book is pretty full on. Oh my god, so full on. Well, like, how do you mean? Well, like, I mean, as in, I'm not reading that excerpt. <laughs> Dude, like, you... Jesus Christ. Dude, you sent me the most explicit fanfic last night, man. Yeah, but I'm not reading it on the show, am I? Oh, so sexuality isn't something you're okay with admitting on air, Claire. Well, I mean, I will admit to having said sexuality. Which is? JK. My sexual orientation is John John Gook. There, I said it. Like, again, that absolutely did not need to be clarified. Yeah, I just I just kind of thought it'd be fun to have it recorded. Uh, like, have it as, as, like, your ringtone or whatever? Like, like, why would you have it as your ringtone? Like, like to, to like, em- embarrass you or something. Like, how would that... If, like, I just, I can't with you, Katie. I can't with you. Usually, I can't with you when you are dealing with allergies. It's just, oh my God, this is just too much. I, I, can't I, I, I cannot help but think that you are trying to dodge the subject. You have an issue with saying the phrase, I'm getting eaten out on air. Is that what this is? Sasha Flattery, your parents could be listening to this. And if I was reading the passage in Ulysses where Bloom is full on publicly masturbating, looking at Gertie McDowell's legs, no one would bat an eyelid. What? There is a whole chapter on public masturbation in Ulysses. Like, there are public readings every Bloomsday, including that chapter with its actual public ejaculation and no one even thinks twice about it. We are going to read the excerpt where Maggie and Lucy are having sex and that is what's happening right now, okay? Okay, this is my favourite show that we have ever done. (laughs) No, seriously, Sarah, I'm going to take this one, okay? By all means, my friends. So, August 21st, 2017. Maggie is in the midst of a second lazy orgasm when her brother Ariel calls to tell her their mother has died. Don't pick up, Lucia says, the lower half of her face glistening. But Maggie doesn't listen. She lives for moments like this. Hello, brother. I'm currently being eaten out, Chloe. What are you up to? And when Lucia pulls her face away, peeved, Maggie leans up on her elbows and says, no, don't stop. But then she listens and she sits up and pulls away from Lucia, tugs her knees close to her body, protective. She can feel her face turn stony, is sure the colour is draining from it as her brother talks. She sees how she must look through her lover's shifting features, Lucia's eyes widening with concern, her mouth hanging open a little, chin still wet. Okay, Maggie says. She repeats it. Then I'll text you my flight details. 
She doesn't say, I'm sorry, though she is, nor I love you, though she does. She can't think clearly enough to say the things people are supposed to say in such moments. Not because she's stuck. She isn't. She isn't even thinking about her newly dead mother, nor of the violence of her death, a car crash along a route she can picture well. Instead, Maggie is several steps ahead, thinking of the funeral, of who she needs to call, of what will happen to her father. She's thinking about whether they need to print programs, whether the synagogue will do that, and whether that's even really a thing or just something people do on TV. She's thinking about her planner, sitting in the kitchen, so far from where she needs it. Mags, you're scaring me, Lucia says. She's sitting very close to Maggie now rather than between her legs, kneeling, her brown breasts hanging heavy, nipples grazing Maggie's knees. Where are you going? Maggie stays hunched into her phone, looking at flight options, prices and times. Home, she says, and leans forward to kiss Lucia, whose lips look especially swollen, though it's just that her lipstick is smeared despite its no-smear promise. You've got a smudge, she says, and thumbs it away. My mom died. What? Maggie tends to shriek when she's surprised, but Lucia goes soft and still. It makes people lean forward to hear and somehow amplifies her presence. It's one of the things Maggie likes about her so much. Her solidness. The space she takes up without trying. Babe, your mom. Yeah, Maggie says, lowering her eyes to her phone again. A tree crashed into her car. Can you hand me my wallet? But Lucia pulls the phone out of her hands instead. Hey! Lucia holds Maggie's face in cupped palms, looks into her eyes like she's trying to find something in there, something that isn't. I think you're in shock. No, I'm not. Maggie jerks her head away and gets up. Fuck it, it'll be easier on the laptop. She grabs her underwear from the ground, pulls on the baggy Babadook t-shirt she wears to sleep, and walks out to the living room where her laptop is still hooked up to the TV, paused on the credits of the documentary she and Lucia had been watching. It's Monday already, the night having turned to early morning without her realising. She needs to compose an email to her boss to explain why she won't be at work for a few days. She needs to call her dad. She needs... What can I do? Lucia has followed her, still naked, and hands Maggie the wallet she left in her bedroom on the chain she keeps attached to her jeans. Maggie doesn't know what to say because she doesn't know what Lucia can do. Her mother has never died before. She's never had a girlfriend for this long, this many months in a row. She doesn't know what having a person help her in this intimate way should look like. She can't ask Lucia to call her dad for her. She can't ask Lucia to look up flights for her. She can't ask Lucy to figure out how to get a hold of the will and whether her parents still have the same lawyer now as they did a decade ago, a plucky blonde woman named Janice, whom Maggie had the displeasure of meeting when she got arrested for smoking pot at age 17. She isn't even sure that she's told Lucy about her mother, whether they've really talked about their parents. It seems like they've been too busy fucking the life out of each other for the past five months. When Maggie's foot begins to fall asleep, she realises how long she's been sitting with it underneath her on the couch. The same position her mother always sits. An inherited trait, or maybe a picked-up habit. Sat, she thinks. The same way her mother sat. The tense change feels like a fist around Maggie's esophagus. Its permanence making the edges of her vision cloud. But no, she can't fall apart yet. There are practicalities to attend to. She's been staring at flight options for far too long. Switching to another tab and googling how to plan a funeral fast and Jewish funeral and what to do when your mom dies. 
She pulls her credit card out of her wallet, inputs the numbers. The tips of her fingers are numb. A mug of tea appears next to the laptop, not steaming, which is good because Maggie can't drink anything hot. She usually puts an ice cube in her tea to avoid needing to wait 15 minutes before drinking it. Lucia must have seen her do this. Or maybe it's been that long already. Here you go, babe, Lucy says and sits on the couch next to Maggie. Her hip, now underpantsed, her torso t-shirted, pressed close. Did you find a flight? Yeah, in the morning. We should get a few hours of sleep before I drive you to the airport. Come on, let's go to bed. You're driving me? Maggie looks up from an unhelpful listicle of ten things no one expects when losing a parent. Lucy's irises are usually two different shades of brown, one deep and rich and the other golden in the light, almost like an eagle's eye. In the shadow of the dark living room and the glow of the laptop screen, they just look black, as if all pupil, like on the night she and Maggie met, both of them on Molly and dancing to EDM at an overpriced warehouse party. Of course. I mean, if you don't want me to, I won't. But I'm here, babe. Maggie wants her to. She also doesn't. This is not where they're at yet. This is usually what she considers too real. This is when she bails. Look, she starts, but she can't go on. So she doesn't say that Lucia doesn't have to, or that she should leave, or that Maggie wants to be alone, because it isn't true. She doesn't want to sleep alone, if she can even sleep. She wants Lucia's teddy bear warmth. She exhales. Okay. August 21st, 2017. In the barely there light of the early morning, Maggie pulls her medium suitcase out from under the bed. She doesn't know if there is going to be a shiva or not. Doesn't know what her mother would want, if she wanted anything, if she had any plans. Was she too young for that? Maggie has to stop what she's doing and calculate from the birth year in order to zero in on her mother's age. 63, she thinks sweat pooling in her armpits at the shame of not remembering. Can you turn that off? She snaps at Lucia, who's making coffee in the kitchen, her phone playing a soothing acoustic guitar playlist. I need to concentrate. The music stops mid-strum, and Maggie feels even worse. She'll pack enough clothes for ten days, in case they do a shiva. Her dad is a lapsed Catholic, and she and Ariel weren't raised particularly anything, though when she was small, when her maternal grandparents were both still alive, they would visit from New York to celebrate the high holidays, going to synagogue and eating lavish meals at the barely used dining room table. She has only glimpses of those years. The softness of Bubby's hands, how everyone said Maggie looked just like Nono, which confused her because he was bald. She does remember her mother crying when the calls came about their deaths, barely a year apart. And she remembers her mother packing, though that seemed to be a constant activity. Now it's my turn, Maggie thinks. She packs work clothes because those are appropriate. Some of her all-purpose jeans and tank tops for lounging around or doing errands in. And the obligatory black dress and heels. Why women need to wear heels to funerals, she doesn't know. Especially when everyone ends up poking holes in the grass when they reach the cemetery. What she does know is that it's expected. Are you ready? Got your ID, money, phone? Lucia hovers at the door, clutching a thermos of coffee for them to share. Her hair is pulled back into the severe ponytail she wears on a day-to-day basis, so tight that it flattens her curls to her scalp, leaving the henna highlights looking like squiggles in a word processor, and then flares into a kinky puff right outside the hair tie. Maggie often thinks about how lucky she is that she first saw Lucia with her hair free and wild and flying as she danced. She's attracted to Lucia any which way, but she looks less approachable with this ponytail more adult and businesslike. 
Of course, Maggie tends to look similarly grown up when she goes to work, where she feels like a kid playing dress up. I'm good, she says, patting her pockets for the items Lucy listed. Her wallet is there. Her ID is in her wallet. So is her debit card, her credit card, and the emergency card connected to her dad's account, which is all the money she tends to carry outside of bar or club hopping, which is the only time she'll make the effort to carry cash. Her phone is in her back pocket. She nudges Lucy into the hallway and begins to lock the door. But she remembers. Wait, shit, I gotta get my weed. Lucy grabs her arm to stop her. No, are, are you crazy? You can't fly with that. No, no, I, I know, Maggie says, her voice trembling. Of course she can't. Though people do. And she wants to. She can't handle this sober, can she? But maybe I can stick it up my vag. I've heard people doing that. Lucia shakes her head and yanks the door shut all the way. Maggie doesn't know it just came over her. She's always in the mood to get high, but she's not an idiot. This would be the worst time to find out what the TSA would actually do if they caught her. She doesn't fight with Lucia on it again, and they walk downstairs and get into Lucia's car. She'll get some when she arrives. She consoles herself. On the ride over, Lucia tries to ask Maggie about her mom. Like, how old was she? And does Maggie know exactly what happened? And how close were they? But Maggie doesn't really answer beyond 63 and car accident. Splat. A sound effect she hopes isn't accurate the moment she ushers it along with a loud clap. We weren't, she tries. I mean, she... I loved her, obviously. But she was weird about... You know. She waves a hand between her body and Lucia's, and Lucia catches it, holds it fast. She always thought it was a phase. Rebellion or something. And she was gone a lot. We weren't super close. Maggie doesn't know what else to say. Her mind is already in California, picturing her dad sitting in his office. But she wouldn't be there now, would he? She hadn't talked to him yet. It's an impossible task to pick up her phone and call him. She texted Ariel the details of her flight before she went to bed, so she knows someone will come and get her, and she'll figure things out from there. We're here, Lucia says, interrupting the silence that fell between them. She puts her hand on Maggie's bouncing knee, stilling it. Maggie stares at the hand, a few shades darker than her own skin, which seems to wear a permanent tan. There were jokes throughout her childhood about her father not being the father. But he is, of course. Maggie's Italian nano was a Sephardic Jew. His ancestors banished from Spain or Portugal to North Africa or Greece, maybe. Intermarrying or having affairs along the way, as people did, before eventually ending up in Italy. At least, that's what the family always speculated. Maggie's eyes feel dry, as if she's been staring at Lucy's hand without blinking for hours when she's pulled back to reality. Babe? Yeah. Okay. Hey, thanks, Maggie says. You didn't have to do this. She moves to open the door, but Lucia pulls her back and kisses her softly, and Maggie yields to it, kissing back harder. But her desire is shut off. Something that she doesn't think has ever happened to her before. Certainly not with Lucia. She pulls away, uncomfortable. Kissing seems like an odd thing to do right now. The slapping of lips together, the lapping of tongues. Such a strange way to show affection, to express want. Maggie touches one of Lucia's breasts and squeezes it a little bit. Everything is so weird. I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Mags. Tears are gathered in Lucia's eyes, and Maggie knows she has to keep moving. She hasn't cried yet, 
and can't let herself now. There's too much to do. A loud tap on the window saves her. It's a man in a neon orange vest, one of the traffic attendants meant to move folks along and prevent loitering. This is a drop-off zone, he says sharply when Lucia rolls down the window. So drop her off or move or you'll get a ticket. Yes, officer, Lucy says. What a prick. Maggie fumes when the window is shut again. And he's not even an officer, you know. He's just some security dickwad, she adds. Lucia shrugs. Be safe, babe, she says. I'll check in with you, okay? Tell me when you land. Sure. Maggie forgets this as soon as she's out of the car with her suitcase and her trans by Jansport backpack, the same style she's had since high school, the only purse she ever wants or needs. On the plane, the pilot talks about how they're all going to miss the complete solar eclipse. You won't see it right in California, he admonishes. Maggie and Lucy were planning to video chat during her lunch break to watch it together. Oh well, she thinks, as the plane begins to accelerate. She has a road to herself, since apparently a Monday morning in August isn't prime flying time. She's grateful for it, and once the plane is in the air, toe ankles her way out of her converse, the same pair she's flown in since moving to the Midwest for college. A good luck charm. See? No big deal. Well, well, I mean, that's just very good. That's just, I... No, just me. Just me. Okay. Not nowhere to look. You're at home, Chloe. I mean, metaphorically, Saoirse, Jesus. <laughs> oh, man. So, so we heard in that excerpt, yeah, we've got Maggie as our main character who's, yeah, gay, going home to grieve her mother who was killed in a car crash. Um, but yeah, we know from the blurb that there's more to this story than just the funeral and Maggie's grieving. So there's also these five letters that Maggie's mother, Iris, wrote to five men that Maggie doesn't know. So Iris's character, though she's now gone, she's like this really big part of the book. So in light of that, and to give us a decent run at the story in the second half of the show, we wanted to take a quick look at the uh, yeah Iris on the day of her accident. Um, Search for the sake of continuity. Do you want to do you want to take this one too? No, yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Whatever, um, whatever helps Katie rest her sinuses. <laughs> Thanks, mom. I appreciate you. <laughs> so sad. But no, no, no. <clears throat> so, yes, Iris. Um, this latest excursion, a boutique winemaker conference, had been relatively simple. So uh, Iris is talking about her work, obviously. Um, but she was relieved to be home. She had a whole week ahead of her without traveling, a rare treat, and she meant to take advantage of it. Peter, her loving husband, um, was already up and at it when she got out of bed. She could tell because the house smelled deliciously of coffee, the hazelnut kind he indulged in on weekends. Ariel was still asleep, she was pretty certain. She hoped so. She didn't feel like getting fully dressed yet, and she knew that her bralessness inside one of the many ratty t-shirts she slept in made him uncomfortable. She'd noticed him averting his gaze before. It was heartbreaking how she'd become old and repulsive to him at some point, her body's existence embarrassing him. She wasn't sure when it had happened, and she knew that it was normal, but she still felt a twinge of pain when he looked away from her like that. A reminder that the last link of intimacy between their bodies, once Babushka dolled inside one another, was severed for good. She put her hand on Ariel's shut and locked door and silently bid him to sleep a little longer, just until she had the energy to get dressed. Hello, sleepyhead, Peter said when she passed his office. Iris waved but kept going to the kitchen and coffee. He followed her there and hugged her from behind as she poured herself a mug. Mm, she said, elbowing him to let her go, and got the milk from the fridge. He put his hands up, surrendering with a grin. It's Sunday, and it's morning. Stop being so perky, she groaned at him. But she didn't mean it. This was Peter, 
and she loved how unfairly upbeat he was. What are you up to today? He asked, leaning against the kitchen island. Without waiting, he went on. I have some errands to do and I'm catching up on that project for the museum. They've asked for some more adjustments, but honey, why, oh why, won't you put it in your contract that you'll only do two or three rounds of changes before adding an additional fee? Iris shook her head. Peter was a good artist, a good graphic designer, but not the best businessman. She should know. She was the one who did their taxes and dealt with their finances. Some years he barely made a profit, what with the subscriptions to various software and the way he took his time with his projects. She was the one who'd really kept them afloat. Peter's income was chump change in comparison to the fees she charged her corporate clients. He shrugged. They're a non-profit. I'm okay with doing a bit more work. Iris didn't understand him in this way, how he seemed to enjoy the work in itself and how little monetary value he placed on his time. She took a sip of coffee and decided she didn't care. This was an old argument, a boring one, and they were doing all right right now, still paying the mortgage, alas, but also building their savings back up, preparing a small nest egg that they could hopefully leave their children. Which reminded her, you know, Anya asked me yesterday when I'm planning to retire. No. Yes, she really did. I think she didn't mean it to sound so rude, but she's more ambitious and grasping than even she realises. Are you dangling Matt in front of her now? Peter asked. Iris raised her eyebrows. He knew her well. It was a good way to keep the excellent assistant around, hinting at a possible promotion, a passing off the baton she wasn't planning on anytime soon. Anyway, sorry, what did you say you were doing today? I didn't yet, but yeah, I have to take my stuff to that dry cleaner that's open on Sundays. You know the one, the ocean breeze place or whatever it's called. Other than that, I'm going to relax a bit. Oh, and volunteering tonight, she added offhand, though of course she hadn't for a moment forgotten about it. Ah, yes, my wife the do-gooder, Peter said. Well, I hope you can relax in my office at some point. I'd love a nap on the chase with you. Iris palmed his cheek before hugging him. She reveled in the way his arm squeezed her torso just a little too hard, anchoring her. She'd only been gone three days, but still, it was always so good to be home. By the time Ariel emerged from his bedroom, Iris was dressed in her weekend clothes, a pair of loose-fitting slacks and a light cotton long-sleeved shirt and was lounging on the sitting room couch with the latest Faye Callerman novel. He traipsed in with both his hands scratching around in his grey <laughs> sweatpants and yanked them out when he saw her like a child caught with his fingers in the cookie jar. That's, that's an apt metaphor. Um, <laughs> hi, he said. I thought you were coming back tomorrow. Nope. How you doing, kiddo? Mm. Still no word from... She struggled to recall the name. Lena? Lenora? Liana? That girl you like, she ended up saying. I don't like her mom. It's not like that. We're friends. Ariel stomped to the kitchen and put his head in the fridge. Right. Iris murmured, only half to him. The girl in question had been friends with Ariel all through college so far and had visited him for Thanksgiving once and for spring break another time and Iris was fairly certain Ariel was in love with her. She could picture the girl's sweet face, her clean-cut girl-next-door looks, the drab brown hair that always looked like it needed a good shampoo commercial makeover to make it shine. But her name... Iris was bad with names some days. She always had been, especially outside of work, but she wondered idly if it was getting worse or if she was being paranoid because she was in her 60s and was expected to be decrepit. Her own mother at this age had looked and acted so much older than Iris looked or felt, which made sense, of course. After all, being humiliated and marked and moved around, suffering a terrible loss, living through a war, then emigrating to the United States, ages a person. Hey, Ariel, want to come with me to the dry cleaners? He lowered a bottle of orange juice from his mouth, where he'd been sucking on it ravenously. 
Um, not really. <laughs> Iris laughed, loving him for his honesty. Fair enough. In the evening, Iris gathered her purse and keys and set out for the second time that day. Peter didn't know what she was really doing at the caring place, the assisted living facility she'd been visiting almost weekly for the past couple months. There were plenty of things that Peter didn't know about the way she spent her time, and she was sure that there were just as many things she didn't know about how he spent his. Still, she felt uncomfortable. She wouldn't say guilty, but only because she tried to scrub that useless emotion away a long time ago. Having a secret so close to home, to Peter. She wasn't worried about Ariel, since he'd never expressed much interest in her life outside of her involvement in his, though as he got older, she supposed that would change. It had for her. But home was hers and Peter's sacred place, and though he was the true homebody of the two of them, Iris had enough respect for him and what they'd built together to have a modicum of guilt. Not that it stopped her from going. On the drive there, she caught herself touching the sides of her lips over and over again, making sure her lipstick hadn't strayed or smeared. It was ridiculous, she thought, being nervous now, at this point, with all that history behind them, with him in the state he was in now. But it didn't make any difference. Rediscovering him, and them, had kept her giddy for weeks, aching to get home for more than the usual reasons. She parked in the visitor's section and pulled down the mirror to check her lips one last time. She noticed a bit of sleep in her right eye from a nap she'd had earlier with Peter on his favourite piece of furniture in the house. The jade green chaise long, with its velvet long since hardened and scratchy. Still, he loved the angle, the way he could hold her on his side just right without his shoulder pain getting in the way, the way he could scoop her close to him and wrap one leg over hers. She was truly one of the luckiest women alive, she thought, though she knew only a fraction of it was luck, really. She created the circumstances for herself over and over again. Like this. Here. Now. Her low heels clicked across the smooth parking lot, the lines of the spaces recently repainted and sharply white, almost gleaming in the twilight. Inside, Darlene, the Sunday evening nurse, greeted her with a smile. Harold's having a good day, she said. He's in the rec room. Oh, good, thank you, Iris said. At the doorway to the rec room, she saw Harold sitting, a bit slumped, watching a rowdy card game that several gentlemen were engaged in, along with a lady Iris hadn't seen there before. She smiled at the curses the players were hurling at each other as they demanded the woman make her move to call or fold, but she was holding her cards in her lap and waving a disapproving finger at them, insisting they give her the proper time to consider her odds. She's counting cards, you idiots, Harold boomed suddenly, and Iris laughed. He heard her. He was blessed with better hearing than Iris's own, which was beginning to fail, a fact he relentlessly teased her about since he was two decades her senior. When he turned to look at her, his face, normally a distinguished craggy mask, spread wide with his smile, causing his cheeks to further wrinkle up towards his eyes while his jaw seemed to smooth out. Iris herself was fairly lined, but she'd been watching the people here since she began visiting, fascinated by the many ways skin could weather the years. Well, look who it is, Harold called out. Deliberately, slowly, Iris walked forward, her thick hips swaying, and released her hair, which had been up in a high bun, from its clip. Her wavy, almost black hair with its unevenly dispersed streaks of grey tumbled down to her shoulders, and Harold wolf-whistled as she shook it out behind her. She knew other women her age who were at peace with their looks, but she could never quite tell if that also meant they still felt sexy at times. She did, at least in moments like these. The card players clapped and whooped for her, the lady winking and grinning widely, showing off a single missing tooth. Hello, Iris, 
Harold said as she pulled up a chair and sat down. The card players included a number of Harold's new friends, though she couldn't recall their names. And the lady just waved and then asked if the others were ready to play or if they wanted to keep gawping at young women. Iris laughed at this. She was certainly not young and her skin showed far more wear than other women her age. Still, the lady had a point. Every time Iris came here, she registered a shock at seeing so many old people in one place before reminding herself she too could be considered old, that people on the street probably thought of her as such. It's busy here tonight, Iris said. The room was relatively full, visitors sitting with residents, children running around with the kind of pack mentality that kids thrust together seemed to acquire quickly. No busier than usual, Harold said, but let's go to my room and open a bottle of wine, shall we? Hava hava, one of the men said, raising extremely bushy grey eyebrows. Now, now, be nice, Iris said as she helped Harold up. He leaned on her, the exertion of rising showing in his pained face. Where's your walker? I got here without it today, he told her proudly, but she could tell that she was tired, his knees wobbling a bit. Darlene had said that he was having a good day, but Iris wondered how much of that was Harold feeling well and how much of it was shame over his need for assistance. His face began to redden as they walked slowly towards the elevator in the hallway by the rec room, and Iris wanted to suggest a rest, or that she borrow a walker from the room they'd just left, but he looked determined, mouth set in a hard line. She didn't want to ruin his good mood. The elevator was equipped with a small bench, and Iris manoeuvred Harold to it and sat with him for the short ride up to the third storey where his room was. He wasn't panting, but he wasn't comfortable, and even as he gripped her hand, he looked away. Penny for your thoughts, she said. Darling, pennies are worthless and you know it. Make a man a better offer than that. Mm. (laughs) I heartily agree, my friend. But yes, yes. So uh, we we should take a break right now. We're we're pretty far in um, already. But um, yes, we we need to take a break because for the first time ever in Chicklet for Life history, we have got an actual ad, like a real one for a real thing, like not not stuff we made up. So um, yeah, take a listen for this real life actual person that actually does this real life stuff and consider d- doing their thing. <laughs> we'll be back in in a sec. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. Following my breakdown of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, I'll be digging deep into the raunchy Twilight fanfic turned erotic romance, Fifty Shades of Grey. Although I'm not sure romance is the best word to use. Join me every Monday and Friday for chapter by chapter analysis of the book that Salman Rushdie said made Twilight look like war and peace. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links and contact information. I have a feeling that it's going to get awkward, but let's get through this together. Happy reading! See, Chloe, there's going to be like way worse than I'm getting eaten out on that podcast. Breaking down bad books, subscribe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like this. Why are you like this? Okay, no, did you know what? Let's move on. Um, so, we, yeah, we said we were going to get into this book and get into it, we shall. Okay, um... Are you holding up? You ready to talk, man? No, I can. I can do it. I can. To- I can totally do it. I believe in me. Oh, you sound so sad. It's a sad situation, sir. And you know, it's getting more and more absurd. What? I, I nothing doesn't matter. It's it's Elton John. You're Elton John. 
I don't know how to respond to that. Yeah, so I win. Oh my God, can we please, this is making me even, like, feel even worse. Can we please just talk to the book? <laughs> Poor Katie, oh my God. But, but yeah, this this book, this was an interesting one. It was it was divisive. Um, well, divisive. I was kind of, I had a reaction that you guys didn't have, um, which was which was interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it'd be cool to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, so like, yeah. So I guess to start at the start. So so yeah. So folks, for folks listening, like we heard in the excerpt just there, Maggie heads home after she gets the news that her mother has died. Serious, earth-shattering news. Yes. So she she heads home, and her younger brother is there, pretty much acting like a teenager. We kind of saw it in the in the excerpt with Iris. There, he still lives at home. He's a quiet, arty kind of type anyway. But with his mom gone, he's gone into this really angry place, which again, totally understandable. Um, her dad is totally at sea without his wife he doesn't understand what's going on he's completely checked out again totally understandable yeah totally with you to hear yeah and like so then Maggie gets there and is all okay so this is all on me I'm gonna have to do everything I'm gonna have to keep all of this going I can't believe my dad isn't functioning even though he's after losing his wife and my brother is this inconsiderate, angry shit that won't help, despite, you know, him actually doing a lot. He's picked me up from the airport. He's after reaching out to the synagogue to arrange the funeral. Um, he's the one who rang me to tell me to come home in the first place. But anyway, he's not doing anything according to me. So, yeah, I'm going to stalk around the place like an angry teenager myself, get high any chance I can and bitch internally about how much work I have to do. Jesus, Sarah. No, like she thinks she's the only one that gets overwhelmed with what has to be done when the adults aren't around and like big stuff happens. Like, yeah, yeah, she lost her mom. But like her dad lost his actual best friend that he saw every single day. Like, why does he have to be around babying her? Why Why is that her expectation? Why does she get to be angry and do exactly what she wants while talking like she's the most like put upon out of everybody there? He's the parent. Like, like Maggie doesn't have children. She doesn't have anyone dependent on her. She's even really worried about Lucia being dependent on her and whether she'll be able to handle that. Not in the way like it'll cramp her freedom or anything, but like, will she be able to deliver on what Lucia needs? Like, and she comes from this amazing, perfect family where the biggest problems were the fights that came up as part of Maggie not being the traditional eldest daughter. So, yeah. I think it makes perfect sense that she'd struggle with her dad not being able to, like, dad actively. It's okay for us not to be okay with our parents not parenting. Like, everyone was shit when she went home. And, like, that's what it's like when someone dies, isn't it? Like, everyone's shit. Because it's all so hard. Like, I remember when my granddad died. Like, doesn't help that there does be drink involved, actually, now that I think of it. But yeah, but I remember me Auntie Karen talking about me granddad, like, going around her house to cut her grass on a Wednesday. And, like, the story was, like, he'd have the petrol lawnmower in the boot of his car and it was this, like, tiny Nissan. And, like, he'd have the seats down and everything because the lawnmower was all big. But he'd be there in, like, the Supercoin car park waiting for, I don't know, Karen to get something. And, like, he'd be lighting cigarettes off each other and Karen was, like, full sure that, like, the car was was gonna blow up it's a nice story but now we're like me ma starts on her like proper starts on her that grand i used to cut air grass on a wednesday not whores he'd gone around whores on a friday and then suddenly karen's all oh i think i know when me own father used to come me own house and ma's all he was my father too and then all day you were always like this you took that bloke off me just because you didn't have someone go to the dead with shut up he was only with you because he felt sorry for you shut up i was dad's favorite no i was dad's favorite next thing they're out in the front having a proper bitch fight 
guy in the middle of the road 11 o'clock at night shit man oh Sarah you'd want to see me granny like she tears down the stairs in her bed jacket no well, no dressing gown was an actual bed jacket from like the 60s or some shit looked like wallpaper and like she has her curlers in she got her slippers on she drags the two of them inside Roaring abuse at them. Use pair of rips. He is making a show me on the road. I won't be able to show me face at mask. That old bitch up there in the end house. She'll have me run out of there, which is baiting each other out there like a pair of bleeding fishwives. She didn't say fishwives, did she, Chloe? She did not, Sarah. She did not. But I have since learned that the word she used in that instance is actually quite offensive to Ireland's indigenous traveling community. And I am pledging to stamping out that type of hate speech one slur at a time. Damn straight. <coughs> damn, damn straight. Oh, my God. Why am we so gross? I don't know. I don't know, Katie. Why are you so gross? It's, just, it's so sad, man. But no, but like by saying that, though, Chloe, I mean, aren't you just making us think of one of the various racist words there are for traveller in the Irish vocabulary. Or am I drawing attention to and calling out and changing that hate speech where I see it, Saoirse? So you said to your granny that she was being super racist that night. Did you not hear me saying that she tore my mum and Auntie Karen out at the same time at 75? The woman was terrifying. No way I was going up against a champ without at least six months training in advance. <laughs> <gasps> oh man, I just remembered me old chitching guy who was on tonight. Oh dude, I'm going to feel so shit, but I'm totally going to watch it. Is that, is that the is that the material point to be making it's right now? It's the rematch, man. Though, like, Stipe is definitely still the best. Like. I don't know, man. 22nd knockout last time for Nganu? It's, it's going to be interesting. Interesting first round, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I always feel that when fighters like that go the distance, it's it's folks with good ground game that are able to swing it in their favour. Why yeah. are we talking about this? Yeah, yeah, I have to agree. As compelling as UFC 260 is, don't we have the bash with Pizzi and Nyler to like listen to for that? Excellent plug for the bash there, Clay. Even though I'm pretty sure his name isn't Nyler. Well, it is. No, that's that's the power I have within the the uh, the UFC journalistic circles that we um, absolutely do not mix in, Sarah. <laughs> just, there's there's nothing to say to that, Clay. There is absolutely nothing to say to that. I feel like we're kind of avoiding the point we started making there, Sarah, about how Maggie like really pissed you off. Yeah. I, no, and she, like, only only kind of in the first, like, half of the book, and then I kind of got what journey she was on. But, like, yeah, I just, I just didn't get why she was so dead set on being so angry at her mom and everyone else, but, like, her mom in particular. Like, that was one of the clearest things in the book, I thought. Like, her mom was so dead set on... Maggie being a conventional daughter. Yeah, but like not not that conventional, not in a like wearing a nice cardigan and not crossing your legs because men can see up your skirt sort of way. Yeah, but like hinting around you only go out with girls because you haven't met the right man yet. I mean, that is that is not great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I I do I do get that. Like that is that is horrible. That is that is hideous thing to do to to your kid, but like I don't know. I just, the whole thing with finding the letters and deciding that she's going to bail and do this huge road trip instead of helping with everything that has to be done after the funeral. Oh, yeah, yeah. We should explain what a Shiva is. Is it not Shiva? 
Now? Now, I'm pretty sure Shiva is the Hindu god, the destroyer. And then Shiva is a Jewish tradition where after someone is buried, the family receive people at home for a week. Anyone that wants to come is like welcome and everyone shares stories about the person that has passed and people coming bring food. And it's sort of a way to make sure that people are like... Yeah, being looked after and get to grieve properly after they've been bereaved. Yeah, and like pretty much straight after the burial, Maggie finds these letters when she's like dealing with the will and stuff. And she decides she has to go on this quest to find all these blokes and find out what they meant to her mom because she's so incredibly mad at her. Like she leaves her brother and her like totally incapacitated dad to run the show for the entire shiva. I was like, I was so angry reading it. Like, yeah, no, but like, the, sorry, Clee. No, no, it's okay. I, yeah, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, I want to ask Sarah um, why why did it make you so angry well like like just like just the self-interest of it like Maggie's obviously got this big personality yeah and she she bumped heads a good bit with her mom when she was alive because she was also a big personality like Maggie's gay and she wanted to create an identity for herself when she was young fantastic great whatever like and if that involves her leaving home to go to college and living in another city fine whatever even long term low level beef with her mom sure why not but like to have the gall to come back when her mom dies like she's the glue holding the whole family together like when her dad and her brother are actually the ones that were there like and then after all that posturing and martyr stuff to like leave the day after the funeral on some personal quest that's all about her resolving her own issues and leaving her younger brother younger to deal with the actual business of the shiva it's exactly the kind of thing Derek would do to me it's exactly the same like you can't just put your needs ahead of other people's needs like that it's just it's not okay why is that much pressure on Ariel why why is there that much pressure on someone who's supposed to be the youngest Derek's still acting a prick then Sarah like what like it's his business whatever like and like I get it I get that he's like not doing well and like that he needs to get help and like my fam are like doing what they can you know it just it just it really pisses me off man it just like I may as well not be here but I'm actually like like we have clean towels because of me we have washing up liquid and we have toilet roll because of me you know my folks are out working Derek's in his fucking clinic or whatever it is he's in I I don't know I wasn't listening like it's just like Maggie having her anger and pain front and centre when she's like on that journey she pretty much self-destructs then you know as well on top of everything else you know and she she gets the necessary help she needs she gets through her journey she 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 reaches her end point she never once apologises to Ariel for hogging everyone's attention and headspace constantly and he's just there following the rules, doing what's necessary. Like, it's just not okay. <coughs> oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Were you able to get that long back in? I know, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Just your boat, man. Just your boat. Like, you haven't had a chance to say anything, Katie. What with your, you know, current limited capacities. That is that is a very polite way to put it. But yeah, yeah. No, like, yeah. I remember you saying that, though, Sarah. Like, that, yeah, Maggie was really annoying you when we were reading the book. Definitely, yeah, through the first half, like you were saying. And, like, like I do get it. But, like, thinking your mom doesn't think you're a valid person and and the reason for that is because she doesn't accept your sexuality like like that's a big deal you know and like whether 
whether that was true for Iris or not, the fact is it was true for Maggie and like that's why she was so angry. And because like it's like real in her head, she's justified in her head for being that angry, you know? It's like it's 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 her reality. Yeah, yeah. And like Iris wanting Maggie to be a normal, capital N normal, like and Maggie's home life being seemingly very straightforward and idyllic, albeit like with her mom being routinely absent like on business trips like finding those letters and finding out what was behind them like it would have gi- even if it doesn't give her the reason for her mom rejecting her because again that's that's her reality like you were saying Katie like at the absolute least it would have given her something on her mom like it would have justified her anger even more yeah, but like then wouldn't she have been like pleased when she found out that her mom was doing the doors on her dad? Like she was real angry. Yeah, but it's like that though, isn't it? Like people think that they're going to get a revelation that will make all of their issues disappear. But then when they do like find out the truth, it's it's just another huge, horrible thing to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and again, I, I, I really do want to make it clear, like the, the problems in quotes that I'm saying I had with, with Maggie, um, which are personal the more the more I think about it but anyway um like I didn't it didn't last the whole book like like I was saying she is on a journey like the the arc we were saying that wasn't there in our last episode for Molly in Ruby Fruit Jungle which I can't say for some reason Ruby Fruit Jungle um like that arc is 110% here for Maggie I I sort of feel like we're overcompensating a little (laughs) yeah what's what's really interesting I think about Maggie is that like I wonder is she like sort of blinded by her own struggle. I'm suddenly like super aware that I'm talking about Maggie's experience as a gay woman like I know anything about it. Is is it... And I want to ask you if I have permission to continue, Kleena, and that is super weird. Well, you know, speaking on behalf of the entire gay community... Yes, it is extremely weird. Why in the Jesus would I give you permission for anything? Yeah, I thought it was sort of weirdly more homophobic to be like, oh my God, I have to ask you for permission. <laughs> like, I still have that feeling though. Like, I can't, like, kind of, I can't have an opinion because I don't know. Or it's like offensive to go. Oh, yeah, that's the question. Would you, Kleena, who's on the phone right now with me, um, would you find it offensive as the gay woman that you are, for me to speculate about what Maggie's struggles have been and how they affect her, given that I, Sersha, am not gay. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I would find it offensive from you in particular, because, yeah, I, I, and even the fact that you're wondering that, yeah, I definitely won't be offended. But like, yeah, because you're not like assuming that your opinion has the same kind of insights that mine would or whatever. Um, I don't really know what I'm saying there. No, 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 no. It's 100% what I mean. Yeah, like you have lived experience of being gay and I don't. Well, like not a whole lot of it. Don't make jokes, Clay. It's a big deal. Single and out is still out. Locked down and out is still out. It's still huge and awesome and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But no, no, I don't have a problem with it. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. 
Oh, this is all just too wholesome. Will somebody please say something inflammatory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what, what I was thinking was, anyway. Yeah, is Maggie held sort of captive by her own struggle? So she comes from this idyllic family that have everything they need financially. Her mom is out of town a lot on business, but her dad is this loving, caring person that looks after them and isn't this standard, like, male presence. She has, like, strong opinions growing up and rebels a lot. And it wears a secondhand suit to prom, gets arrested for smoking weed, shaves her head before she goes to college, presumably to donate her hair, but that never quite happens. So that kind of underlines that it's a rebellion, you know. Um, And she comes out as gay and her mom seems to think that that's just another rebellion, which, of course, is super reductive and Maggie's understandably like livid over it. And that anger doesn't go away. And it almost seems to become part of like Maggie's psyche. Like my mother doesn't accept my identity as a gay woman. But then as she goes on this journey to meet the men her mother has had these relationships with her mother's lovers, she she finds out that one, her parents' relationship wasn't as perfect as she thought, though her conclusions on that are wrong too. So, so her parents' imperfect relationship is parallel to her perfect childhood, you know? So how do those things coexist, you know? And and two, she finds out that her mother was incredibly open-minded. That's evident in the men that she's had relationships with. Iris seems to have been someone with a real, I don't know, like magnetism and like an ability to sort of see what's truly attractive about people away from societal expectations or an age or gender or physicality or any of that, which is pretty like crazily cool. And yeah, you can sort of see how Maggie has cast her mom as the villain of the piece. And that sort of chips away as she learns more about who Iris was as a person. Like, by going on this journey and learning these things about who Iris was, she she gains freedom from this really one-dimensional idea she has of her mom, which is that she does not accept me based on my sexuality. That's it. It, it, it There is a freedom in, in learning about her mother as a person. Yeah, there was there was another bit that was a bit like that where she's Maggie is talking to that guy Liam, who is one of the guys um, that receives one of the letters, and he says something along the lines of like queer people have always been here. That's something you younger people need to get through your heads, um, and that sounds sort of patronizing at a context like that but it's but in the context of what what the conversation is like it's more like maybe maybe one person's struggle isn't the biggest thing going on or like it's only the biggest thing for that one person if you start to tie up your struggle with the greater struggle like you kind of mistake one for the other or something like is that the right thing to do well so like people that are struggling should just accept that their struggle doesn't matter and that everyone else has stuff going on so just shut up that's that's what we're talking about Sarah, right now no like i appreciate that stuff is really hard for you at home right now but that's not what we're talking about at all like no i remember that bit in the book as well Katie, and it hit me the same way that you're saying like it's after maggie has had a really full-on night talking to that Liam person about her mother and how hard it was and how much pain she was in and she sort of connects with that pain in a really real kind of way like where she might be a bit of a danger to herself in it because she's so upset but like before that she was sort of 
again, this is all, yeah, conjecture from my point, my point of view or whatever. But like, it seemed to me like she was kind of using that pain to fuel unconsciously fuel all these behaviours like half pushing Lucy away while really wanting to be with her like acting the martyr when she goes home as you like rightly say but then not following through on much of you know anything that she was expected to do running out on the family trying to torpedo her relationship with Lucia while she's on the trip um, like those aren't things a happy person does but the excuse she tends to give is that she's just so angry because she's had to deal with so much because of her identity because of her sexuality but then talking to Liam and connecting with that pain and all and him saying we've always been here is him sort of saying you're not alone but also you can get over this you have to get over this you have so many supports now that people didn't always have take advantage of them like it's not shaming her or saying that she shouldn't be angry but like what is she achieving by keeping her anger in the same place and and not like doing anything to deal with it on her side you know Yeah, and it seems that by discovering her mother's humanity and the complexity of her relationship with her husband, her relationships with other men, and the kind of person her mother truly was, as opposed to this authority figure she had in her head, Maggie seems to kind of discover her own humanity too. Like by letting go of her anger, she gives herself more space to get things wrong. Because to me, anyway, she seems to act out because she knows what will happen, in quotes, when she acts out. If she tries to do the right thing, if she trusts that her relationship with Lucia will work out, if she gets upset with her dad because he's regressed in his grief, but she misses her mom too. If she does any of those things, what will happen? She seems way too scared of that stuff to try it and find out. So instead, she does the angry thing or the selfish thing or the outlandish thing because she's been along that pathway before. She knows how it works out. But as she dismantles that authority figure, Iris, and replaces her with a complex, loving, pretty well-principled woman Iris is, she seems to give herself the same respect and understanding she starts to give her mom's memory. They both benefit. Yeah, I like, yeah, all, all of that makes sense. I just, I just don't get why some people get to not play by the rules and other people have to other people do like the the people that are playing by the rules I mean aren't they better than the people acting out like isn't Ariel better than Maggie because he stays home and does what he's supposed to do no one is is better than anybody else no like I like I don't mean better than I just mean like I mean like people that do bad things are bad people you know and good people aren't bad people that's that's why they do good things bad bad people are bad people Sarah that don't make no sense no no I think I understand um maybe maybe we should talk after the show Sarah but like since since going to like Al-Anon and stuff like yeah that idea of good people and bad people it doesn't really help you know because if if other people are good people and bad people then like we're good or bad people too and like where do we sit in that ranking and how bad is it to be low in the ranking and how do you get higher and like how how does that help anyone like is any of it real I don't I don't think so it only kind of serves to to hurt people like you and me like um I think we should talk after the show yeah yeah that that sounds like a good idea here though what were you saying there though Sarah about Iris being like all complex and stuff yeah like 
like I'm not sure how I mean this, but like, did you not think it was weird that like none of Iris's blokes were like, like, dude, you were not gonna say it? Well, like normal. Come lad, on, man. Lloyd. Well, like, surely it makes more sense to be going out with normal blokes instead of one skinny bloke, one super old bloke, one bloke that has to do mad sex things because oh, oh, you okay, can't. Okay, like, okay, don't, don't, don't give the whole plot away. Okay, okay, okay. Like, I just. I didn't get it. Like, why was she into all these really different fellas? Like, everybody has a type. Well, I mean, maybe her type was men that knew who they were. Oh, oh that's nice. That. What exactly is that supposed to mean? Like, I was talking about, like, brown hair, tall blocks, JK. That's what I was talking about. I know that's what you were talking about. But what I am talking about is the fact that I think Iris was attracted to confidence. And, like, backstory. I think she's attracted to people that challenge her. And I think the five men she wrote letters to. Well, six, really. Oh, you're right. Yes, yes. The six men that she writes her letters to, they all challenge her as a person. She seems to have been someone that really wanted to connect with people. That was what she found sexy, it seems. Like, it's interesting that she was able to have all of these relationships with these men when they were all so interesting to her and yet she didn't catch feelings at any stage. Yeah, and like, they all seemed to, like, except Liam, he seemed like the most kind of on the same page as Iris. Yeah, yeah. I suppose he kind of had the hardest time. Like maybe with his backstory being as difficult as Iris's, he was like able to keep their relationship separate to the rest of his life the way she wants. Yeah, it was weird. Like that idea of being unfaithful without being unfaithful. Right. Like I don't know that we can talk about it in too much detail without revealing like tons of plot but like yeah the idea of what constitutes infidelity like that that was really interesting like it's like it's the lying right like what Iris was doing was interested in because of like who she was lying to or not telling anywhere like she if she hadn't told anyone about her affairs it would have been different but yeah decide of it as to like who she chose to tell and who not to tell that was that was interesting. Yeah, like, yeah. But, like, you have to put your family first. Like, that whole thing, it was like, like, she decided to have that family. Why does, yeah, I didn't really get why she got to have those affairs. Why that, she was able to, like, justify that. So, like, that she has to put her family first at the expense of her own individuality, kind of. What? Do you mean? Well, like it's it's in the sequence with Howard that we that we heard at the start. Like even as she got older, Iris still had the same sexual desires she had when she was younger, and I thought it was pretty cool, like and and fairly feminist to show that so clearly for an older woman in like that really no nonsense way. You don't think of older women as being sexual beings, like old guys hook up with twenty somethings all the time if they're rich enough, and folks are all gross but okay. Like an older woman though accepts that she has sexual needs and people just cannot get their heads around it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, yeah, and, and I think it was super feminist to have Iris inhabit that space, totally. Old people get the ride too. <laughs> Old people get the ride too. No, no, what was interesting there is that Iris is allowed to have her individuality over the needs of the family, but Maggie's anger at her individuality not being sort of celebrated by her family, that caused you issues no and I like I don't mean that as like a gotcha or like I'm trying to catch you as or anything it's just it's just interesting is all 
Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Um, Iris is the mom, though. So, like, that kind of means that she's already worked super hard. Like, it's fair enough that, like, her kids have to help now that they're older. You know, I just I just think it should be equal is all. Yeah, I mean, I think we all just need to say what we're really talking about here. Ariel should have worn his good clothes to the funeral, <laughs> making a show of everyone in that T-shirt like a toe rag. Oh, my God. He was reared better than that. Like, is this what it's like to talk to your mum? It is not far off, Katie. It is not far off. <laughs> it sort of feels like you went around in circles today, though, doesn't it? Yeah, we did sort of talk about it all, though. It's just sort of... Everyone was kind of on their own journey and didn't let anyone else in on what was going on for them. So everyone else in the book filled in the gaps themselves. I mean, not about the characters in the book, but I suppose it could apply to us. <laughs> but like, yeah, Maggie assumed she knew what was going on in her parents' marriage. She assumes she knows what's going on in Lucia's head, assumes she knows what the Shiva is going to be like and how her dad and brother will deal with it. But Iris assumes she knows what's best for Maggie and her relationship and does the same with Liam. We see that parallel and it's all sort of communication, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like that bit where Maggie's all, oh my God, if Lucia has a problem in a relationship, then she can just tell me. Otherwise, like I should trust her. I was all like, well, yeah, Jesus Christ. How is anybody supposed to have a relationship? Christ almighty, how are you taking it this long to like get to this point? Oh my God. Dude, calm down. I don't know what I did to my neck right there, but it's real sour. <laughs> Extreme podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing about that is how funny you found it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but but no, yeah, like like what we were saying like yeah, it's hard. It's hard for people. Like if you're used to people acting a certain way or like having a certain reaction, like it's hard to like if you know how to avoid somebody getting really pissed off at you or whatever, like you're you're gonna act in that way instead of like asking them every time and stuff. You know, it's it's hard to to stick with the communication stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy hard. But like, especially if you're good at all of that avoiding bad stuff happening kind of thing. But like, you do have to stop it somewhere because like, and maybe this is just my own situation. But like, when you stop running around after people that you think need it, like most of the time, and definitely in my case, like nothing changes. Like I was doing all of that for absolutely no reason. It's so stupid. Yeah. You good, Sarah? Yeah. No, no, yeah, no, I am. I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. Um, but do you know what? We are we are over time. So was yeah, before we finish up, was there was there anything else we um we needed to talk about? Oh bless you. Oh my no, thanks. <laughs> it's so horrible. <laughs> no, I, I don't think there's anything else. Plus, I really, really want to go lie down in a dark room right now. No, but like seriously, no, there is one more thing. No, I do want to point out that our readers should absolutely be looking out for just how sexy both Lucia and Nelly are. Okay. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, very attractive young ladies indeed. Seriously, like that Nelly, my God, like I absolutely would. No questions asked. Rude not to get in line, girls, 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 girls. There are enough fictional women to go around. Seriously, I mean, it's only episode two. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe we'll leave it there before anybody gets challenged uh, to a duel for my lady's fair hand. Oh, man, where did I put my single white glove? <laughs> nice. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hi, everyone. Fourthly, we'd like to thank all of you for your kind support during our Come Home Dino campaign. 
It's been an emotional two weeks, but we are glad to inform you that me and Jono and Dino and Dino's older brother Jake all had a game of FIFA online last night and it was proper deadly. Had a few cans and all we did. It, uh, was good to get the whole two tires in one chain team back together, you know? But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, Dino will be locked down for the next two weeks on account of his man having COVID and all. Like, she's grand and everything, but it just means that, like, Dino has to make dinner and she's allergic to, like, gluten, so he can't get Domino's. Um, so basically, he's had fish fingers and potato waffles for, like, the last three nights in a row. His ma says that, like, they're going to get scurvy, but Dino's been eating waffles for, like, six months solid now and he's grand. Point is, we still can't change user tires, but in two weeks, oh, lads, it's going to be lit. So, like, don't get your bike repaired until Dino's tests come back negative. Then we can change them tours for you. Right here at two tours. One chain. I'm so glad he's back. <laughs> <laughs>